Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. My name is Father Ryan, and uh, I'm really excited to be in this space with you. It's our first day, again, with Children's Nursery. Thanks to all of you who, uh, who attended our, our, our training uh, in order to be able to facilitate that. It is such a blessing uh, to, to our, our, our church here uh, and to have um, the space and the time to be able to worship together and for our children as well as you're hearing to be able to, what, whatever you call that, I'm not sure if you'd call that worship, but I, I'm sure in some manner of speaking, it, they are crying out to their <laughs> heavenly father. I, I actually, I don't have children of my own, but I, I have in this last year gotten to experience uh, some slight taste of caring for children. I've been in charge of a pod group dealing with online uh, students who are doing online schooling in uh, Arlington County and their ages uh, kindergarten through third grade. And one of the interesting uh, gifts of that time is getting to see their curiosity and their, their, the ways that learning finds a way to happen, even in a non-traditional setting. Uh, but I also got to experience some of the ways that they interact with one another in some really unique and different ways than adults do. Um, so, for example, what I, um, it, it's kind of funny when, when you build a rapport with these students, uh, the, the, the younger they get, the less inhibited they get with their responses to questions and things. So, for example, um, when I ask something like, knowing f- when I walk in and I see an, an enormous mess when I know that you were supposed to be in class and there's yelling and people are throwing things and I walk in, immediately they stop and look at me. And one of them will go, I, I, I'm on a break. And I was like, I, I didn't even say anything yet. Like, I, and, but I'll come in and I'll say, hey guys, what are you doing? And one of them will look immediately to the other ones. He asked me, uh, he asked me if, if I could come and play with him. And, uh, and I'm like, I d- that doesn't even answer my question. I just want to know what you are doing. I, I'm not accusing you of anything. Uh, or maybe I'll even, I'll, I'll even come where I suspect they're meant to be. And I'll say, hey, guys, where are you at? And uh, they'll sort of be, uh, they'll come out and they'll say, uh, hey, I, I, I forgot that I was supposed to be doing the class, the, the class that you have every day at this time. Well, it, my teacher said that there was another thing I had to do because it's, op, I'm not, I don't have to do this right now. Like, you mean like the activity you do every day? that's required? Well, it's optional today. Well, okay, I'm gonna check with your teacher because I have her phone number and I'm gonna just make sure that that's the case, right? And you're okay if I ask your teacher if that's the case? Oh, I, I didn't do it. 
I'm sorry. Oh, okay, thank you. So there's this interesting back and forth, and, and parents, I'm sure you're well familiar with this, but listen, I, just because the kids aren't here, and we've got them right here, so those of you who are hearing this, children, I'm not picking at you because your parents might be better at covering up their, uh, their mistakes in this regard, but we have to be honest, guys. This is our... <laughs> This is how we all <laughs> operate in our lives. We've just gotten a little better at hiding it. Um, we, uh, we're going to be looking today at Genesis 3. It's a, a text that's tricky because uh, we know it very well. If you've been around the church or if you've been around any, uh, any Judeo-Christian context for a long time, you, you've heard these stories. They're... they're um, the story of Adam and Eve are engrossed in our cultural sensibilities and our, our imagination. And it, it's hard because, for one, it's a weird story. There's a talking serpent. There's, uh, it begins in this, this era that we have never experienced before the fall of man. And it, it ends with this this uh, sort of banishment from the garden that is also God's mercy. And so you, you might be asking, how is God merciful if he's also banishing his people from the garden he used to bless them? Uh, you, may be, you may be wondering, um, you know, it, it, it also, this text in particular, it, we, we've, we've gone over it and through it so many times if, and, and even referenced it and I, one of the hardest things to do is to reimagine it, to, to experience it afresh, and to truly hear from God's voice. And that's what I want to experience with you today, um, to look specifically at three things, and just to see three things that this, this, um, this text teaches us. First, that the... the Things that are specific to the text, but also are universal for us. First, the, uh, the allurement of autonomy. Secondly, the, the shroud, uh, shrouding of shame. And thirdly, the fleeing of fear. And, and ultimately, what I want to invite us to today is to come to Jesus together. To come to Jesus together as we are and to come to, to him on his terms alone. So first, let's look together at Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5, we see the allurement of autonomy. See, verse 1, it opens with this serpent's question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So notice the serpent's tact here. Notice that he engages with this question. He's hiding his intentions. So he doesn't have to kind of come out. He's a, little, he's a bit sneaky. And, and immediately he distorts God's words. God didn't say that. Okay, just going a few verses back. What God said in, in Genesis 2 was, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So he, he invites her to respond, asking a question. And, and the woman, she responds. And, and you have to give her some credit. She, she does fairly well in, in, in responding to the retort, to, to the uh, distortion of God's truth. She, she comes and she says, well, uh, did, uh, she says, uh, we may eat of the trees in the garden, but then she immediately kind of flubs up a bit. Uh, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she's getting a little ahead of herself in terms of adding something to God's words, but she's doing her best. She's, she's trying, in, in some sense, here to, uh, to begin pushing back against the serpent's voice. So notice in verse 4 what the, what the serpent responds to, the words. That he says to the woman, you should not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in verse 4 and 5, the serpent shows his true colors. He attacks, no longer simply questioning God's good intentions and loving commands and boundaries he's placed for his beloved children. And, and, and notice he even reasons with her when he says, you will not surely die. That's his assertion. And he's, he, but he reasons. He gives reasons too specifically. He implies that he knows God's character better than she does with her simple-minded obedience. God's holding something back from you and selfishly keeping you blind until you have your eyes open. And the serpent invites her into this unfamiliar position of assessing God from some neutral standpoint outside of the provincial providential care that God has placed in her life outside of this sleepy obedience into a, into a place of judging God's commands and character for herself, calling this having her eyes opened rather than taking God's word for it. And finally, he tells her, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the serpent is not merely speaking here of intellectually knowing something, of, of like having knowledge of something, but knowing here, it means the mankind would possess the ability to decide for yourself, to decide for themselves what is beneficial versus detrimental for you, instead of just parroting after what God has to say. Autonomy, freedom, freedom to decide and pursue what good or bad for yourself. Simple. And then the serpent leaves it at that. The serpent leaves this dialogue there, giving no direct order, no summons to action, leaving the woman facing the tree. Why shouldn't mankind 
have the privilege to autonomy that God has. Again, we, we too experience the same allurement, the same temptation to autonomy, the temptation to be our own gods or to make anything other than God himself the God of our lives. Rather than live and worship at God's children in the good boundaries that our Heavenly Father has given us. See, the Bible seems convinced that this is something that we are going to face. That temptation as Christian people is a given. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians when he says, I am afraid that, the, that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Thomas Akempis teaches us that temptation can be useful to us, that it can be used to humble us, to keep us humble, to cleanse us as we resist temptation. It can teach us to progress in a spiritual life because no one is truly free of temptations because the source of temptation is inside ourselves because we lost the original innocence in that garden. We too are tempted by the allurement to autonomy. But that's not all. We also have the shroud of shame. We experience the shrouding of shame. In verse 6 and 7, we see... So if this was a movie clip, uh, in verse 6, if this was a movie clip, you'd forget these three seconds happened until you got to the end of the movie, and you'd be like, oh, that's what happened there. It's actually a very boring scene in one sense. Look at what's happening here. There's no dialogue. There's no back and forth. Eve is looking at the tree. She takes the fruit. She eats the fruit. And she gives some to Adam, and he eats the fruit. What's the big deal? Many of you probably did something similar this morning when you're trying to to gobble down your breakfast and just like gave one to your child because you forgot to feed them breakfast too. It's, it's, it's a very simple thing. We're, we're, um, I know that's not COVID friendly, so I apologize for um, the sensibilities. But um, it, it's, it's a very simple thing. So what we get here in verse six though, it's this internal experience. She saw that the tree was good for food. You see, this echoes Genesis 1 and 2 really closely, where God saw that the light was good. He saw that the earth and the seas were good. He saw that the earth sprouting vegetation and the fruits was good. He saw the expanse in the heavens and the day and night and the rhythm of the seas was good. He saw that the seas and the skies swarming with living things was good. He saw that the earth bringing forth living things was good. 
He saw that it was not good for man to be alone and provided companionship, marriage, friendship, community, and communion in his presence, unbroken forever. The woman sees that the fruit is good for food. How often are we like the woman and the man in verse six? When we have the chance in that moment to see all God has made and give the gift call the gift good in thanksgiving to its maker. We find our delight in our chance to make a name for ourselves rather than delighting in the name of God in Christ. We desire what will make us happy in our own autonomous estimation rather than what will please our heavenly Father. And we pass. Just as Adam and Eve passed, we pass on the opportunity to speak against the allurement to our own autonomy in simple submission, obedience, and trust under the care and the protection of God. And we eat. We eat. The man and the woman are so immediately struck by the transformation. They they can barely process what's happened in this new status. Their eyes are indeed opened, just as the serpent said they would be. Perhaps the shocking sensation that they experienced in that moment, it, it made them think they'd done it. it. Made them think they'd become gods. They were no gods. They were simply naked and ashamed. Seeking suddenly to shroud their shame in cloths sewn from leaves of the trees. Shame, brothers and sisters, shame is a powerful emotion. Feeling guilty. It leads us to do extraordinarily confusing Things. So I want to distinguish between shame and guilt. Shame. Shame is this, this subjective experience, this, this powerful emotion uh, of this. this uh, the definition specifically here is that shame is the subjective, often painful emotion of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So shame is that subjective, powerful emotion of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Shame is often a very unhelpful, especially when it's based in lies or even half-truths. The enemies of our lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil will tell us that we, that our experience of shame is real guilt when it's not. Maybe it's things that have been reinforced in our lives, often unconsciously, through the various spheres of influence that we encounter, our families of origin, the culture around us, the things that we see. These burdensome feelings 
are often unexamined and they're really hard to understand and distinguish from helpful shame. You see, helpful shame is this, that as a, as a Christian, helpful shame is what we experience when we experience the objective guilt of breaking God's law. The, the objective guilt of breaking God's law. It, our, our catechism, the very first question we ask in the, in, in the Anglican catechism uh, to be a Christian, it says this, what is the human condition? And it says, though God created good and we're made for fellowship with our creator, humanity has been cut off from God by self-centered rebellion against him, leading to lawless living, guilt, shame, sin, and the fear of judgment. This is the state of sin. This is the state we all live in. And we affirm as Anglicans original sin that this state of sin is one that is a given for all of us. And this experience of shame and guilt before God's law is something that we must grapple with in our lives. And it brings us to the third point, this universal truth that we see ingrained in Genesis 3, the fleeing in fear. Look at verse 8 through 13. Look at what Adam and Eve do with their shame. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. You see, when, when tempted, they ate. And when they ate, they felt shame. And when ashamed, they hid from the presence of God. How strange must that have been for God? His children hiding from him. <laughs> they, he knew full well where they were. He knew full well what they had done. And his response in verse 9 is extraordinary. He asks, where are you? Where are you? A rhetorical question, no doubt. But how profound. What an opportunity God has given them. Certainly my children will answer me. Will answer me where they are. He asks again, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Did, did you do a bad thing? <laughs> and in verse 13, he says, what is it that you have done? Speaking to the woman. He gives them this opportunity to vulnerability and transparency. And they're hiding from his presence. You see, the, the temptation is not just to sin, but then in sin to hide from God's presence. And we all know this far too well. As Christians, we're given a much different path, a much different place 
for us to be because we have a savior in Christ Jesus who has showed us what it means to be obedient. And he says this, come to Jesus. Jesus calls to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. When tempted, Jesus came to God and trusted in God's word perfectly. When tempted, we too can patiently endure in the strength of God's power rather than fleeing his presence in fear as Adam and Eve did. Or even if we are, if we do avail ourselves to be exposed to God, we still shrink back from true vulnerability. Adam's response in verse 10, it sounds like things I say to my wife on a regular basis. And if, again, if we're honest, we all relate to this quite well. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. He didn't even answer the question where he was. I'm hiding. I hid myself. And then when asked, have you eaten of that fruit? He points first to the woman, then to God, saying, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You can see him experiencing that same sensation of shame and hiding from the vulnerability and the presence of God in his midst. You see, brothers and sisters, as, as Christian people, what we experience is restoration to true worship and communion with God. So how do we come to Jesus? How do we overcome the temptation, shame, and hiding in fear that we see in this passage and that we are all too familiar with as humans? Three things. Confession, forgiveness, and communion. This is not just a commercial for church, but a commercial for the Christian life. You see, confession, it's that deep trust in Jesus' grace and mercy that we are able to receive and come to Jesus, weak and heavy burdened, and that he will give us rest. We do not come on our own terms. We come on his terms. We come as we are, and we come as a people prepared for an uncommon transformation to be transformed into his likeness more and more like Jesus every day. We come together as community. Our liturgy is packed with this opportunity for us to examine our consciences before his law, to confess our sin as we will in a few minutes, and to receive his forgiveness, absolution, cleansed conscience in the blood of the Lamb. And we experience true and restored communion with God.
Not just a communion at the Eucharist table, but communion with him and with one another in restored relationship. So I, I leave you with that question today as we continue with our worship. Where are you? What an opportunity we have today to, to respond. Where are you? Where, where are you at? This is a question when I can't think of how, I, how to actually uh, interact with God and I'll, I'll going through my prayers and, and trying to experience some sort of personal devotion and feeling lulled, I, I often just make a long list of what's on my heart, what I'm thinking about, what comes to mind. I did this last night as I was finalizing my preparations for this sermon. A lot of it was, I'm nervous about preaching. A lot of it was, I'm thinking about my baseball team that I coach. I'm stressed about work next week. I'm really excited for the summer. Where are you? Because once you get past those initial thoughts, suddenly other things bubble up. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm afraid. I need you. These are the places that God invites us to come to in our worship. So where are you, brothers and sisters, as we continue with our worship? Respond to God. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, our shame, our guilt, and our despair, but you say as the psalmist in Psalm 130, you say, come, you say, cry out when in doubt, cry out to me from the depths of despair. Trust in my redemption and I will give you rest. Lord, we thank you for the chance to worship in the throne room of your grace today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.